You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. I've been an Apple customer for a long time now. I have the iPhone. I have the computer. Uh, I have the email. I even got the Apple TV and the, the Apple Watch for Christmas one year. And I remember when Apple first came out with the iCloud. Now, the claim of the iCloud was that this was going to bring everything together. This was going to integrate not only all of your devices, but the message was that it was going to bring integration to your life. I was excited about that. But you know what happened on that first software update? Everything went haywire. None of my devices were communicating with each other. Everything was disintegrated, and I felt like my life was coming apart. I needed Apple to get that thing together. I think that this is the way that most of us experience life in general. Author and counselor Chuck DeGroat says that we often experience our lives as divided, feeling pulled in a thousand different directions. We wonder if a sense of balance and harmony is possible. Whether we realize it or not, we long for that elusive wholeness because we were created for wholeness. Wholeness occurs when the whole of a human life is focused and integrated in God. Wholeness receives from God the complete law and the complete wisdom for all of life. Wholeness responds to God in wholehearted faith, in wholehearted love, and wholehearted obedience. It returns to God in humility, contrition, and hope. It rests in God hopes in God, and delights in God. Wholeness, contrary to pop psychology, wholeness cannot be found simply by accepting who you are in all of your disordered and distracted existence. It's a goal toward which you can only move in relation to a center that is whole, and that center is God. That's the only way you can move toward wholeness. It's in relation to a center that is whole. So, preeminent New Testament scholar Richard Bauckham suggests that wholeness is the overarching theme of the book of James. So today I'm going to speak on the subject of a holistic faith. A holistic faith. And we'll approach this text through three points. I want you to seek emotional wholeness through the word. I want you to seek spiritual wholeness through the word. And I want you to seek social wholeness through the word. Those are our three points. So let's look at our first one. Seek emotional wholeness through the word of God. And I am drawing this point from verses 19 through 21, if you keep your eyes on that text. As he begins this section of his letter, James pivots off of verse 18, where he talks about the word of truth, 
And he pivots into the exhortations of our passage today in verses 19 through 27. All of the exhortations or commands of our passage for today, they grow out of verses 17 and 18 from our text last week. In verse 19, James says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, and it includes the sisters. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. James tells us that the Father brought us forth by the word of truth, and we must continually be quick to hear that word. And what he means by hearing is believing it, taking it seriously, and being quick to obey it such that it governs our speech and mitigates our anger. Now, James is going to come back to speech ethics again and again, and we're going to hit that throughout this letter. But I want to take a closer look at anger. Anger. James tells us that we should receive the word in such a way that it mitigates or calms our anger. And according to James, there is good reason why this is important. Why is it important for you to hear the word in such a way that it mitigates your anger? His answer comes in verse 22. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. If we understand what James is saying here, we will realize just how timely this word is for us in our cultural moment. The phrase righteousness of God can be translated the justice of God. The Greek word is dikaiosune. It can be translated as righteousness or justice. And as one of my old professors from seminary, Dr. Dan McCartney, suggests, this phrase is better understood as referring to bringing about God's justice, the accomplishment of justice in God's eyes, a setting things to right. Can you hear James this morning? James, in concert with the rest of Scripture, sees the pursuit of justice as crucial to our formation, a central work of discipleship and Christ-likeness. Justice is not just some sort of hobby that you casually take up if you're into that kind of thing. Justice does not belong to political and theological progressives. American jurisprudence is not the final word on justice. Justice belongs to the Lord. He has the final word on justice, and he demands that his people work his justice. However, James tells us that the anger of man does not produce the justice of God. Anger must be put away if we would do the work of justice. <laughs> but you might be thinking, <laughs> why doesn't the anger of man produce the righteousness of God? Isn't there a category for righteous anger or righteous indignation? I think James would say, yes, there is a category for righteous anger. 
But it's a tightrope that few of us can walk for long without falling off into evil. Our anger, here's the deal. Our anger is usually retaliatory or punitive, not redemptive or restorative, which is a key component of God's justice. In our anger, we are more interested in getting even than setting the world right and recovering flourishing. Furthermore, anger clouds our vision and our priorities, causing us to react rather than to act in principle. Anger causes you to, to react impulsively rather than to act in principle. We can see here from James that if you're conducting the worthy pursuit of justice from a place of anger, then you will typically get something that is neither biblical nor just in God's eyes. I'm going to say that again. If you are pursuing the work of justice, the worthy, necessary work of justice, if you're pursuing it from a place of anger, then what you typically get is neither just nor biblical. Put another way, when we pursue justice from a place of anger, we end up producing more injustice. And that is a pill that's tough to swallow, but you must take it. Let me give you an example. We can sociologically and compassionately understand riots as the language of the unheard. We can do that. Sociologically, we can understand where rioting comes from. And we can be compassionate toward those who feel like they have no options. But riots end up causing unjust harm and damage to others. The anger of man does not produce the justice of God. And hear me when I say this. This is not as much a rebuke of the marginalized as it is a rebuke of the church that leaves the marginal feeling like they have no help. This is not a rebuke of the marginal. It's the rebuke of a passive church that obviously is not living in such a way that the marginal feel like they got support. If, if all the people who claim Christianity in this country were about what James is talking about here, we wouldn't have no riots. There would be action taken, and the marginalized would know that they didn't need to fall off into anger in kind of a prolonged and destructive way. But there's a bigger picture that we can develop from James's point here, and it's this. It's this. We must seek emotional wholeness through the word of God to pursue sanctification, health, and wholeness in our emotional life. In his book, The Emotionally Healthy Church, which, as a sermon application, I'm just going to tell you up front, get any of the books by Pete Scazzaro on emotional health, okay? In his book, The Emotionally Healthy Church, Pete Scazzaro gives us a sense of why it's so important for us to seek wholeness emotional wholeness through the word. This is what he says. Quote, it is not possible for a Christian to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. Say that again. It is not possible for a Christian to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. It jacked me up first. James specifically names anger 
But we know that anger is not the only emotion that we must bring into harmony with the word. And when it comes to emotions, I find that we tend to err in one of two ways. We either ignore our emotions and stuff our emotions, refusing to do the necessary inner work that we talked about last week, or we passively submit to our emotions and let them take the driver's seat to shuttle us to bad places. It's this idea. If I feel it, it must be true. Have you ever been there? If I feel it, it must be true. But your feelings are not always telling you the truth. For example, you may feel unlovable. But the gospel says that Jesus loves the unlovable and nothing can separate us from his love. In that case, your emotions are lying to you. You may feel anxious. But the gospel tells us that we've been adopted by a peerless father who is present to provide for his children. Your anxious feelings are lying to you about the reality of things. You may feel like a victim, a victim of your circumstances or a victim of your critics. But a biblical anthropology says that you have agency, choice, and creative potential as an image bearer, even if you're victimized. There's a difference between identifying as a victim and being victimized, but that's for another sermon. And how do you move toward emotional wholeness? Schizero offers many helpful ideas, but here are a few. I'm going to try and run through them briefly, okay? One, practice looking beneath the surface of what you've been feeling and doing. You got to notice what's going on. Two, practice asking yourself, what's going on? What's going on here? Why am I angry? Why do I always get anxious around that person? Why do I feel like a victim of the schedule that I myself created? <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to project. I don't mean to project. Why do I feel the need to be amazing all the time? What if I'm believing a lie that my emotions are telling me right now? If you chase the why of your emotional life, you will come to know yourself in a way that you never have. And on that journey, you will also be surprised by what you discover about God. This is important, y'all. In the very beginning of his institutes, John Calvin says that the key in the Christian life is this. you got to know yourself in order to know God. And you got to know God in order to know yourself. You need to know each. They're mutually informing to get a true sense of both. Three, link the gospel and emotional health. Link them. The gospel will give you the freedom and the courage to explore your messy emotions. You don't have to be afraid. The gospel gives you the freedom to come out of your hiding place, to, 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 to kind of dump out the contents of your heart to see what's there. Because here's the deal. 
He redeems. He redeems. Four, get rid of the glittering image. This speaks to our need to be perceived by others as successful, competent, polished, and strong. Listen to me. I'm, I'm speaking to you from experience. So long as you feel the need to be amazing all the time, emotional wholeness will elude you. It will elude you. It will always be slipping through your fingers. Five, receive the gift of limits for yourself and your community. Do not resent your limits and do not resent the limits of your community. We are, you are a limited person. You are a boundaried person. Why? Because you're not God. If you're not God, you got limits. All right? And it's important for you to recognize those limits and to honor those limits for emotional health. But not only that, you need to honor the limits of your community. Not just as individuals, but you need to honor the limits of this whole community. Do, do you know that we can't do all the things? We ain't got the money. We ain't got the bandwidth. We, ain't, we, we are limited. So think about that the next time you, you say, you know what we ought to be doing? With all of the good ideas that we all have, we have to make choices. And that's a healthy thing, emotionally healthy, okay? Six, embrace grieving and loss. Though it's very difficult, Schizero says we grow through grief. And he uses the illustration of a compost pile. He pulls from Milton's Paradise Lost, and he says that Milton used this illustration, and he said that all the evil of this world... All of the broken things in this world in God's hands are like a compost pile. Yes, there are decaying things. Yes, there are dying things. Yes, there are stinking things. Yes, there is a mess. But when you cover it with dirt, it, it becomes fertilizer for something better, something more beautiful, something nourishing. That's the way he would have you think about grief and loss. And here's the deal. As you move... In grief and in loss, as you move from your state of orientation, experience the loss, and you experience disorientation, and then you experience God's redeeming touch, and you get reorientation, you are following a biblical pattern. It's all through the scriptures, particularly the Psalter. Like a married couple in conflict, you must get your emotions talking to God's word if you would gain emotional wholeness. You must let the word sink deep roots into your soul, sending its shoots into your emotional life. As James says it, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. You know what James means by receive with meekness the implanted word? Do it. <laughs> Do it. It's simple. James is no must, no fuss. He's straight to the point. He ain't playing with y'all. <laughs> That's what we get from James. Do the word. To receive it and plant it is to do it. Remember, it's not possible for a Christian to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. So seek emotional wholeness through the word. But we also need to seek spiritual wholeness through the word. 
Which brings us to our next point. Seek spiritual wholeness through the word. And you'll find this point drawn from verses 22 through 25. Now, verse 22 says this. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Again, James is presenting us with this persistent warning against self-deception of conflating hearing with doing. Spiritual wholeness involves an integration of what you hear in the word and what you do in your life. That's spiritual wholeness. Spiritual wholeness cannot be reduced to knowing a bunch of theology. Spiritual maturity cannot be reduced to mere activism. Hear me, what James wants is wholeness for you spiritually. All that you are integrated and shaped by the word of God. Such that it's in your heart, it's in your actions, it's in your relationships, it's in your worship. Spiritual wholeness involves an integration of what you hear in the word and what you do in your life. A harmony between belief and practice. And to make his point, James uses an illustration that was very common for moral instruction in his day. Look at verses 23 through 24. He says, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Now, it's a little hard to connect the the dots here in our English translation, but it seems like James is making a reference back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. And it should be understood as forgetting the kind of human being that he was made to be as an image bearer of God. If you want to get more detail on that, let's hook up. Let's, let's connect. You know, just send me an email. We can talk about it. I can, I can answer that. But it stems from what happens. The natural face in the Greek text says the face of his origin. And many biblical commentators suggest that face of origin is referring back to the original image of God. All right? He forgot the kind of human being he was intended to be as an image bearer of God. Let me connect some dots here. For most people in the ancient world, mirrors were not common household items. They just weren't. And it's crazy because we're always in a mirror. <laughs> they, weren't, they weren't very common in those days. And, and the mirrors that they did have, they were like polished metal. They weren't like the, the kind of mirrors we have today. So the image was kind of distorted and blurry. And you didn't really have a firm grip on what your face looked like. They, they realized, of course, that they were looking at their own image, but limited exposure to a blurry and slightly distorted image doesn't give most people a deep and lasting impression of what they look like. And it seems that James is saying that if you're a hearer, but not a doer of the word, it's like you're looking into scripture at your created purpose and dignity as an image bearer and then forgetting what your life is supposed to be all about. Forgetting here, it's important to note, is not just failing to remember. It's not innocent 
absent-mindedness. It's allowing something to escape by inattention, neglect, or disregard. You were created by the word of God. You are sustained by the word of God. You've been redeemed by the word of God. You've been guided and instructed by the word of God, but now you're betraying the word of God through your divided loyalties and self-deception, James says. James then comes in with the contrast in verse 25. Take a look. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. James wants us to see the contrast between looking in the mirror and forgetting our face with looking into the perfect law, seeing the image of God, and coming to continually do the word. If you look into the mirror, friends, and you have enough sense to notice a hair out of place and put it in place, then you ought to have enough sense to look into the word and see something that's out of place in your life and put it back into place. I, it's unthinkable to me that any of you would have looked in the mirror this morning before worship and seen a bunch of eye crust and then just left and went to worship. None of y'all would have done that. James is making a very simple but significant illustration here. Don't look into the perfect law and neglect to see what you were meant to be, recognize the disparity, and do nothing about it. That's what he's saying. The one who looks at a mirror may briefly see the reflection of a human being created in God's image. But the one who steadfastly gazes into God's law sees the much clearer image of God. They see what humans were meant to be. They see how far they are from that intent. They see Jesus fulfilling the law on their behalf and dying in their place. They see peace, love, and hope of the gospel. And then from grateful hearts, they delight to integrate hearing the word and doing the word. You see, James says that this doing will find blessing in this life and in the life to come. And Jesus is the reason why James calls it the perfect law, the law of liberty. The only way the law becomes the law of liberty is if it's fulfilled on your behalf by Jesus. And it's after he fulfills it that then the moral law can be a guide by which we walk in the spirit. In theological categories and in confessional categories, it's called the third use of the law. We can talk about that later. We are now free in union with Christ to seek and find wholeness through the word. But lastly, I want you to seek social wholeness through the word. And I'm drawing this point from verses 26 to 27. James's reference in verse 25 to being a doer who acts, a doer who acts on the implanted word, this flows into a description of the kind of obedient, faithful acts that James has in mind. He says, don't just be a hearer, be a doer. And specifically, 
here's what I think you ought to be doing. And now that's what he gets to in this point, all right? Now, when you initially, now check it, check it, check it, check it. All right. <laughs> Sorry, I'm getting lost in my notes. All right, listen, James wants us to seek social wholeness through the word and three crucial areas of our relational life or social life. One, how we talk to people. Two, how we care for the marginalized. And three, how we engage our culture. And based upon my observation of our cultural moment, maybe one of these would make the priority list for most American Christians. Here, James obligates us to a socially beneficial, neighbor-loving faith. <laughs> Verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. <laughs> now, when you initially hear this, you might think, oh, okay, James, you woke up today and chose violence, I see. Okay, <laughs> you're just going to come at me like that and put the hammer on me. What's, what's really good, James? You just had to do this to me, right? But remember, James is a Jewish sage, and he has integrated the wisdom of other sages most importantly, his Lord and earthly brother, Jesus. And Jesus taught that the source of our words is our heart. In Matthew 12, Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Your words are simply telling the truth about your inner life. James is helping us to see our words as a diagnostic of our hearts so that we can avoid self-deception. If you are well-practiced at tearing people apart and criticizing people all the time, if you're belligerent with your words, that is telling you something about the state of your heart and your faith. And James would say that's worthless religion. And that's hard to hear in our social media age where we feel justified in tagging people who we think are off the mark. Or people that we think are being belligerent, we tend to act belligerent toward them. James is saying, you better check your heart. It's like that meme, the dude with the red solo cup. <laughs> <laughs> When James calls such religion worthless, he's connecting poor speech ethics with idolatry. Because this was the language used to describe idols. Idols are worthless. They're nothings. They are empty. They are vain. He is saying that those who lack speech ethics are idolaters. We will have no, we, we, listen, we're, we're going to have more time later in our series to talk about speech ethics. So just sit with that one. I just threw that hot potato at you, all right? Just sit with that one this week. But we get to the second crucial area in the beginning of verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. 
this is a specific enactment of the justice of God that James is talking about in the beginning of our passage, reflecting the character of God. And I love how this old school cat named St. Bede the Venerable, I like how he, that's, that's a dope name, St. Bede. What's up, Bede? What's up? Yo, Bede, what's up? Like, if any of y'all looking for kid names, Bede is available. And if you raise them right, they might become venerable themselves, all right? This is what St. Bede the Venerable says about this passage. <laughs> he says, it is good to see that James has added the words before God the Father. Because there are plenty of people who appear to be religious in the sight of men, but who are wicked as far as God is concerned. Bede woke up and chose <laughs> violence as well. <laughs> violence toward the sin in our hearts. In scripture, God is especially a father to the fatherless and a protector of the widows. You don't believe me? Psalm 68.5, father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Next, right? All through the scriptures. This is how God is portrayed. This is how human beings who have become children of God are to reflect his character and do his works, James tells us. The language of visit means to bring justice to, or to care for, or to seek out, or to concern oneself with. And here's the deal. Any of these meanings, these possible meanings, they work here. They work well, in fact. But the most common meaning in the New Testament is to go and see a person with helpful intent. To go and see a person with helpful intent. It's the motive of helpful intent. The purpose of giving aid or looking out for the interests of someone, that is the point here. The distress they face is typically social and economic. And this necessarily obligates us to get out of the salt shaker and into the world, as Becky Pippert used to put it. We are the light of the world. We're the salt of the earth. And the salt don't do no good if it's still in the salt shaker. It's got to get out. Whether it is distributive justice, which is determining who gets what, procedural justice, which is determining how fairly people are treated, retributive justice, which is disciplining the unjust, or restorative justice, which is making things right, our formation demands a prioritization of justice as portrayed in Scripture. And right here in our local community, you have the opportunity to do the word. Because we are partnered with DC 127. And our deeks are doing a bang-up job of staying connected with those wonderful partners of ours. And we should never, ever have any problem getting support for that ministry to help to deal with the orphan, to care and love. And not only this, you may notice, maybe you haven't, there are a lot of widows 
and widowers in our neighborhood. There are. And James, on behalf of the Lord, is calling you out of mere theoretical agreement and into action. That's what he's calling you to. James concludes this chapter with the third crucial area, and we're going to get more on justice for the marginalized through this series. So I'm trying to land a plane here. The third crucial area is in verse 27, the end. And to keep oneself unstained from the world, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, our Father, looks out to be helpful for the marginalized and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Do you see that many Christians often find these two to be opposed to one another? Some people are all about holiness and they aren't engaged with the marginalized. And some people are engaged with the marginalized, but they don't care about holiness. James is saying it's a false dichotomy. It's not either or, it's both and. And in fact, true religion that is recognized in the eyes of God as true and legit is all of it. It's all of it. Keep oneself unstained from the world. This does not, I want to clear something up, because depending on the church tradition you grew up in, you might have grew up in a, in a separatist kind of like circle the wagons, and we only deal with Christians. And so I'm in my Christian church. I have my Christian friends. I go to my Christian barber. Oh, I met a Christian who has a car wash. I'm going to his car wash. Right, like, you only engage with Christians. This is not what James means by keeping yourself unstained from the world. It doesn't imply avoiding contact with, with religious outsiders and unbelieving neighbors, but refusing to comply with that approach to life, which is inconsistent with God's values and intent for the world. That's what he means. And this is why I'm always bringing biblical critique to our cultural moment for this congregation. To the extent that Christian churches ignore their relationship to the dominant culture and, and pastors leave their members with no guidance or reflection on being Christian in relationship to the culture, Christians will be torn between two poles. You will err in one of two ways either sectarian withdrawal or assimilation to the culture. And what is needed is for the Christian community to develop as a countercultural alternative and witness to the dominant culture in its own life together. One New Testament scholar, Richard Bauckham, says this, we should live in critical solidarity with all that is good in the dominant society and in prophetic critique of all that is corrupting and destructive. Which is to say, all of the common grace that we see in our non-Christian friends and neighbors, we should celebrate it. It's, it's evidence of God's grace in their lives. Even if it's not redeeming grace at this point, it's common grace. And we should celebrate that. But it also involves prophetic critique of what is happening in our culture. And you know where that puts you? Right in the middle where you get jacked up by everybody. 
I'll put it to you this way. If you don't catch any heat for the way that you live out your Christian faith, you probably need to evaluate whether you're actually doing the word. Seriously, it's rough, but it's worth it to bear witness. The book of James can inform the life of such a countercultural community because this is the precise aim that James has, is forming a countercultural community. Do you realize that our embodiment of Scripture, doing the Word, God intends for us to be the Bible's hermeneutic for our neighbors. Put another way, God intends for us to do the Word so that our neighbors get the interpretive grid that they need to understand what the Scriptures say, to understand who God is, to understand who they are, ultimately. We are to be their interpretive grid. And we are their interpretive grid. Which is probably why so many people are walking away from the Christian faith. It's true. It hurts, but it's true. And we will never correct it until we own it. We just have to name it. And it's not like we're, we're you know, superior to all the Christians out there in the rest of America. We have to struggle to do the word ourselves so that we don't become self-deceived here at Grace Mosaic. We are not beyond the possibility of falling off into any of these errors. So it's a good practice when you hear the word not to think, yeah, this is a good word for so-and-so back home. <laughs> they need this word. You know, I'm going to send them this sermon, right? No. No, that's like, that's like the husband who hears the word, and he's like, yeah, my wife need to hear this, right? Like, no, you need to hear it, joker. <laughs> Take it yourself. God wants our life together to be the interpretive grid by which our neighbors come to understand what it's all about in the story of God. This is how our neighbors come to understand and see the testimony to the person and work of Jesus Christ and why Jesus changes everything. James is telling us that true faith shows up in wholeness throughout every corner of our lives, not compartmentalization where there's a slice of the pie that's your spiritual religious life and God can have that, but you got the rest of the pie. He don't want a slice of the pie. He wants the whole pie like me on Thanksgiving. He does. He wants all of your life. He don't want to be a part of your life. He wants to be your life. And that's what James is after, wholeness, wholeness. If you do the word, God will bring the various aspects of your life together in ways that no tech company or self-help guru ever could. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.